You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 277 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. And today I want to talk about how there is no such thing as a free lunch. There is no free lunch. To aid in unpacking this fact, this incontrovertible reality, I would draw your attention to skyrocketing inflation. If we studied economics and history and our Bibles, we would not be in the position we are in right now. Because our economics have been driven by dishonest experts, so-called, because politicians have tried to bribe their way into office and to hold their offices by offering ever fatter bribes to constituents. Money has been printed in a way that devalues all of our savings, drives up the cost of everything, and jeopardizes our not only economic future, but our military and diplomatic future. One thing I have found in playing strategy games for years is that you need to have a good economy in order to support a war effort. If you don't have a decent economy and you get attacked by an aggressive, ambitious, expansionist neighbor, good luck putting an army in the field and replenishing lost troops, good luck building defenses, good luck purchasing the things that you need to purchase in order to maintain your defense, much less launch a counterattack. Countries which destroy their own economies do not win wars. Which is another way of saying our country spending money like we have through COVID and really for decades is predicated on the idea that the bill will never come. You just keep running up the tab and someone else will pay for it whether that's our children, whether that's our grandchildren, someone else is going to pay for it. Poor, ignorant, misled people imagine that the rich will pay for it. As long as we see someone who is better off than we are, living comfortably with plenty of money in their bank account, we think, well, there's plenty of money to go around. But the trouble is, the folks making the decision for what is spent, where and how, and when and why have no concept of how much or how little money there really is. 
Right now, today, this morning, the headline I read says that gas prices are 58% up from this time last year. Meat prices are up 13% from this time last year. That's a major spike, especially if a lot of Americans have changed jobs and maybe even taken a pay cut, if not stayed flat in their wages. I have not seen a pay raise in over two years. I saw a moderate $1 increase. I would not call that a pay raise, particularly when that does not keep up with the rate of inflation. If you have not seen greater than 7% increase to your wages in the past two years, you have taken a pay cut. And that's the hidden reality of inflation. Inflation is a very pernicious, subtle, roundabout way of taxing everyone and everything. Print money and you devalue your money supply. So if my employment is predicated on X number of dollars and all of a sudden there are twice as many dollars in the economy as there were before, each one of those dollars is worth half as much relative to the supply of goods. If the supply of goods does not double in keeping with a doubling of the money supply, then you have devalued your currency. The only way to combat inflation is to increase the supply of everything proportional to the increase in the supply of money. But we don't see a doubling of the supply of everything else in keeping with a doubling of the money supply. And I'm not saying that the money supply has doubled. I'm just using that as a nice round figure to get your attention. But let's suppose there were $1 trillion in the economy circulating. If you rounded up everybody's dollars in the whole country, put them all in one big pile, you would have $1 trillion. Let's imagine that. And then let's imagine that some senile, dementiatic, fraudulent, illegitimate politicians decided that they were going to print another trillion dollars because they couldn't raise taxes enough. That might jeopardize their bid for re-election. You can't tax a trillion dollars out of the economy because then everybody else in the country has no money. So you just print another trillion dollars. Well, the trouble there is you didn't really print what would have been a trillion dollars worth of money prior to your decision. You've really printed the equivalent of $500 billion. If you had a trillion dollars in the economy before and you print another trillion, your new trillion and the old trillion are worth half as much as they were. If the supply of everything else, meat and gasoline, for instance, stays relatively flat. So now, in effect, if you have, let's say, an older person who had $100,000 in the bank, they're too old to work now, or they're getting close to being too old to work, and they have $100,000 in the bank for their retirement. If you print money in such a way that it doubles the money supply relative to everything else, all of a sudden, that 
elderly person, either retired or on the verge of retirement, has the equivalent of $50,000 saved up for retirement. They no longer have $100,000 saved up. They have the equivalent, in terms of purchasing power, of half as much as they did before. Which is to say, you've just stolen from them in some sense. Now, this isn't the main point, but as an aside, this is a really great reason to not let money be the object of your worship. Don't love money. Don't put money at the center of how you evaluate yourself and the people around you who is worthy of your time and attention, whether you are worthy of the time and attention of other people. Don't let money be the metric. Millionaires and billionaires come and go. It doesn't matter how much money you have before you die. Once you're gone, your assets are redistributed to your heirs or to the state. You're taking none of that money with you. And you're also taking none of the debt. So that's a bright side. But the trouble is a righteous people, righteous rulers, wise rulers care about the inheritance they leave or don't leave to their children's children. Meanwhile, when you have foolish and unwise rulers who care first and foremost about themselves, their own power, their own prestige, their own comfort, their own ego, you will get decisions made by those rulers which care not a whit for future generations. That is where we're at. That is what we find ourselves dealing with right now, is people in charge making decisions who don't care what impact this is going to have on our children and our grandchildren. It is immoral and foolish that we are robbing our children and our grandchildren of a future. And it's being done in many ways, printing money like it's going out of style, passing spending bills by the trillion, shutting down the economy, stonewalling domestic energy production, promoting climate change hysteria. A tornado rips through four states and the president of the United States tries to use that as a argument for why you should give all of your money and your power to the Democrats and the globalists so that they can save the planet from weather. See, look, this was a record-breaking tornado. We've never seen anything like it. Therefore, the world is going to end and we have to stop using and producing fossil fuels and really everything. We've got to reduce our headcount, stop having children, stop getting married. Fool around, please. Yes. All the better if you fool around in ways that can't produce children, which I think is part of the reason why the LGBTQ plus business pairs nicely with climate change. But you have in our leaders a depravity, a twistedness of purpose. 
wherein they're thinking short-term. They can't see past the nose on their face at how this is going to impact future generations. The bill is always going to come due down the road somewhere. There's a parable in the New Testament, which many are familiar with, but I don't think many of us think of it in these terms. And this parable has to do with two brothers, two sons of the same father, a wealthy father who has land and servants and flocks and herds, and he has two sons. And one of his sons decides he doesn't want to be a part of this anymore. He wants to cash out and go his own way. And he has the temerity of telling his father that he would like his inheritance now. Never mind that his father is still alive. Never mind that you risk giving the impression that you can't wait for your dad to die. Never mind whatever it is that your father, your wise father, might have been doing with that wealth to grow it so that you have a better inheritance when he passes on in years or decades. The one son wanted his cut now. And so in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, the father liquidates enough assets to give his one son what it is that he's asking for. And so endowed, that young son goes off by himself, goes to the city, parties, hams it up, has a lot of friends who are happy to help him spend the money. And then at a certain point, the money runs out because he's not paying attention to how to protect that wealth, how to generate more wealth, how to use that wealth to produce more wealth. He's not investing. He's splurging. In fact, that's what prodigal means. Prodigal means he is prodigious in his expenditures. He spends beyond his means. And at a certain point, the money dries up because he wasn't bringing anything in. He was just spending, spending, spending. And about the same time that the money dries up, lo and behold, he stops being as popular with the folks who were mooching off of him. And so he finds himself poor and alone. He finds himself eating out of a trough with some pigs because he's so desperately hungry. And the thought occurs to him when he's at his lowest point, after eating and drinking and partying away his inheritance from his father, that maybe he could go back home and maybe he could talk with his dad and maybe his dad would let him be a servant because even his father's servants don't have to resort to eating out of the trough with the pigs like he is. So the prodigal son goes home and his father who has every reason in the world to be angry and bitter towards his son, who's been foolish, who's been ungrateful. The father sees his son coming and runs to meet him on the road and embraces him. 
And the father throws a party to celebrate the return of, as you may have heard, the prodigal son. He orders, I believe it's a calf, if memory serves, to be slaughtered, the fattened calf, because he wants to throw a party. The father wants to throw a party, but it's a different kind of party. It's a different kind of party that the father wants to throw because he wants to demonstrate his love for his son. It's not that he's rubbing it in. Oh, you like parties, do you? I'll throw you a party and just rub it in. Salt in the wound. No. The father wants to throw a party for his prodigal son returned to let him know, I love you and I care about you. And it just so happens that the wise father who has built and protected wealth for his sons is in a position to where he can do that because he's been wise, because he's made good choices. Now, as an aside, of course, in the parable, you have the brother who stayed, who worked, who didn't cash out and abandon his father, who didn't ask for his share of the inheritance now. He kept his nose to the grindstone, kept his shoulder to the plow, and he kept working with his father. That brother, that son, is angry with his father. And he complains about how he never felt like he could even ask for a goat to celebrate, to party with his friends. And now his brother, who has been so rude and disrespectful and foolish and stupid, comes home after spending his inheritance, wasting it. And you kill the fattened calf? The father chides his older son. But here too, I think that the father is patient with the older son who's frustrated, who's angry. I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were going to do this. I knew he was going to blow it. Here he left talking about how great he was going to be, how great life was going to be forever now that he had some money of his own. He wasted it and now here he is. He's back, and you're still enabling him. You're still propping him up. Don't you get it? And of course the father gets it. Of course the father knows. But you see, the father's love is not for his wealth, first and foremost. The father's love is for his son, who was lost and is now found. And where that relates to our story is that we have a prodigal country, which has decided, foolishly, to elect rulers who drizzle honey in our ears, who whisper sweet nothings about how the bill will never come due and we can just spend our way back into prosperity. Tell everybody to go home and stop working. That will go down in the history books if the world stands, if there continue to be history books for much longer not because of climate change, but because maybe the good Lord comes back and delivers us from this aggravation. One could hope, but it's in the Lord's hands. If there are history books in the years, decades, centuries, God willing, to come, this period in time in this country, in the United States of America, will go down as one of 
exceptional, historically epic folly, idiocy, stupidity. Future generations will mock and deride this country for the stupidity of having put people in charge who can't even finish a sentence. When you can't see to the end of the sentence, you should not be in charge of where all the money goes for a whole country of 300 to 400 million people. You should not be in charge of telling everyone how we're going to rebuild the economy. Build it back better? You can't even build back a sentence better. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but in this country, we, the people of these United States, are a self-governing people. And quite frankly, who we consent to be governed by is a reflection on our character. If we shrug and are indifferent as others are being led away to the slaughter, as we ourselves are being led away to the slaughter, then we get what we have coming to us. And someone might say, well, Garrett, let's be real. What can we do? Maybe it's the Lord's will. And maybe it is. But I don't think it pleases the good Lord for us to have his will be a cop-out and be a permission slip for passivity. I don't think that pleases the Lord. It may be the Lord's good pleasure to allow us to be foolish, but judgment is coming. Maybe it's the Lord's will that my daughter's room is messy. And so if I tell her to clean her room and she comes back with, well, maybe it's the Lord's will that my room's messy. What is that? And does that change my responsibility? If she says, well, Jesus might come back any minute. What do I say? I say, clean your room or Jesus is going to come back to me spanking you. <laughs> the Lord returning and this possibly all wrapping up shortly is all the more reason to be earnest in doing good. Not to be ho-hum, not to be passive, not to be burying talents in a field when what is needed and what the Lord expects when he gives us talents is investment. Why, if God did not want us to be wise, did he give us Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? Riddle me that. If God wanted us to fall constantly back on Jesus is returning any time now and use that as an excuse for a lack of productivity, a lack of energy, a lack of concern, a lack of forethought, a lack of planning, a lack of responsibility, a lack of wisdom. Why did he give us Proverbs? Why did he give us the sayings of the wise? Why, for that matter, did he laud wise King Solomon? You know, quite frankly, and I mean this with no disrespect to anybody who is squeamish about King Solomon in the Old Testament, but quite frankly, it seems to me as though Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines were not the wisest. And yet we are more foolish still and in no place to judge. Solomon had the good sense, the discernment, the humility, 
ask God for wisdom. God offers the son of David and Bathsheba, which was at its outset an illegitimate union, which subsequently appeared to be legitimated by the fact that God gave the kingdom to Solomon. It was illegitimate. There was a punishment. There was judgment. And then they moved on. And that was that. Solomon is offered anything he would ask as a son of David, now king. God will give him what he asks. And Solomon asks for wisdom to rule this people. And God commends Solomon for that. And Solomon, 700 wives and 300 concubines are no, which I think a lot of folks automatically assume is some kind of a Hugh Hefner scenario, but I'm not so sure about that. Solomon writes Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. There is more peace and prosperity in Israel under Solomon's rule. Solomon is allowed to build the temple that David is not. David is a man of war who has blood on his hands. And that's not all David's fault. Some of it is. He has Uriah's blood on his hands. But for the most part, David waged war and fought battles and led men in decisive action on the field against the enemies of the Most High in obedience to God. And yet God says, David's not allowed to build the temple. He wants to. David wants to build the temple. Man, does he want to. But it was a trade-off. And God's temple could not be built by a man who had blood on his hands. It could not be built by a man of war. And yet you find David's son by Bathsheba. He names Solomon. Peace. If you've ever heard the Jewish word shalom, that's the same root word in the name Solomon. Peace. Which is so interesting. It's almost as if after all that war and fighting and killing and winning battles, triumphing over his enemies, God giving Goliath into his hands, giving so many others into his hands, so many Philistines, giving so many rebels, giving the kingdom into David's hands. What does his naming Solomon tell you about what David really wanted? What he really wanted was peace. And what his son gets is peace. And what we should be thinking to ourselves in this time, at this moment, since God has ordained that we live here and now for a purpose, not accidentally, and not to no good end, but to do good works that God created and prepared beforehand in eternity past for us to do. What we should be thinking to ourselves is that the world may yet stand for another thousand years, if the Lord wills. If it pleases God, the world stands for another 10,000 years. There's nothing that says the world is over when America crumbles. Look at history. Look at Rome. Look at Spain. 
Look at England. Look at the Dutch. Now look at America. And realize that we are about due, particularly when we act like this. Now that said, history is also full of intermediate depressions in a nation's fortune as that nation becomes self-indulgent, short-sighted, ambitious, dishonest, idolatrous, wicked, which we check all of the boxes for, by the way. We throw parades for our wickedness when we should confess it and mourn it and repent of it and seek God's face in Christ over it. History is full of countries which had setbacks, dark times, and yet turned away from temporary madness to enjoy golden ages. And only God knows where we're headed, whether we are headed to destruction and the ash heap of history, or whether we are headed for a new golden age. Only God knows. And God ultimately can decide. And we shouldn't forget that. You know, take David, for instance. When Samuel the prophet comes to the house of Jesse, David's father, Jesse assembles all of his sons to meet the prophet of the Lord. Samuel is known as the kingmaker. He's referred to as the man of God. All of Jesse's sons are assembled for this honor of meeting Samuel and possibly being anointed the next king of Israel after Saul because the kingdom is being taken away from Saul because Saul didn't keep God's commands, didn't obey his statutes, and did not faithfully execute what he was told to by the Most High God. All of Jesse's sons are there because they may just be the next king of Israel, except David. David would seem to be somehow the black sheep, the red-headed stepchild. The red-headed stepchild he was, he was ruddy in complexion. It's thought that he actually was, in fact, red-headed, according to the text. Red-headed stepchild, out tending the flocks. Just try to stay out of the way, please, David. We don't need any more of your antics. We don't need you embarrassing the family. Samuel is told by God, as he is surveying the sons of Jesse, it's not any of these. The one God has chosen is not present. Samuel then confronts Jesse. Is this all of your sons? Really, truly? Don't lie to me. As it turns out, of course, it's not all of Jesse's sons David is sent for. And Samuel anoints David to be the next king. God tells Samuel to not judge by outward appearances. God doesn't judge by outward appearances. In fact, however bleak and bad things look right now, we happen to serve a God and have been created in the image of a God for whom it is nothing 
to speak all that exists into being out of nothing. Ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing, from nothing. That should color how we respond to these things. That should give us peace, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, as Philippians 4, 1 through 9 talks about. Guarding our hearts, the peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. None of this is happening outside of God's jurisdiction, outside of his awareness, outside of his sovereign will. That doesn't mean that everything that everybody is doing pleases God, though. And that's where we have to be very careful to not be know-nothings, to not be do-nothings. Now, if we don't know what we ought to do, then perhaps what we ought to do is pray and ask God for wisdom, like Solomon did, like James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us to in the New Testament book, which bears his name. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. James chapter 1. Let him ask God, believing and not doubting, that he will receive wisdom from the Most High God. What God may tell you is, have you read my book? You know, it's so funny to me. Not that I can compare myself to God, and yet I wonder if I feel a reflection of how God feels. Sometimes when I'm talking with someone about homeschooling or I'm reading some article where people are acting all confused and forlorn about the subject of homeschooling and I see this gap and I say, I wrote a book about this. Have you read it? You should read it. You should check out my book. And this is why we homeschool. Oh, we're thinking about homeschooling. We're not sure if we should. What are the reasons to homeschool? I wish someone write, would, would write a book on why someone should homeschool. Oh, well, that's funny. That's an interesting story. I did. I wrote a book. And this is why we homeschool. You should buy it and read it and be persuaded. If only, if only... Maybe, just maybe, things are in a bad way. And maybe we need to admit that. And maybe we need to be asking the good Lord for wisdom. And maybe we need to be thinking long term. What is God's plan in this? What does God want for us in this? I think it's going to be unpleasant in the short term. But maybe by God's grace, we turn Maybe God heals our land. The story of the prodigal son should tell us what kind of a welcome we would receive if we've squandered what it is that we inherited. That's that. But the father in the parable of the prodigal son is the most high God. We can rest in that. That's all I got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. 